Go ahead and grab your Bibles. You can flip with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we will be this evening. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and it is a longer chapter, 28 verses, but we're going to go ahead and um, read that and then work our way through. This is message number 12 in our Outside the Camp series in Hebrews, and I'm calling this message The Blood and Covenant. So let's go ahead and read. These are the words of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which there were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may also may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. 
Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, since at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we bow before your throne tonight in recognition that in order for us to be your priest kings, we must be entirely reliant upon Christ, our priest king. We desire, Lord, to press your kingdom and covenant into the world so that all men, women, and children may serve you, which means that we need your help, Holy Spirit, and we need it each day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. One of the things that we have to keep hitting on, and this is because it serves as a central motif in the background of the book of Hebrews, as well as the entire Bible for that matter, is the fact that God intends to put the world to rights. God intends to put the world to rights. God's kingdom will not stop until it has caused problems in every sector of life. I recognize that this sort of thing tends to lend itself towards pointing out the obvious, but if we don't work within the context of a proper eschatology, we will have an improper orthopraxy. In other words, a failure to recognize the fullness of what God intends to do with creation and history leads to impotence and ineffectiveness in the world. If we do not believe that Jesus is our present priest-king and that Jesus does not intend to rule the world in any real meaningful way, which is what passes in evangelicalism today, then we cannot expect to make any tangible difference in the world. We simply will not disciple nations and teach them to obey God's law word if we don't even think this sort of thing can happen which means that any diagnosis of our current cultural circumstances that leaves out a fully-orbed faith for all of life message of the gospel will be incomplete. And you see this all over the place. Church leaders you know, gathered together to fight injustice, and they do it all apart from biblical law. You see philosophers and social commentators pontificate all sorts of psychobabble, And because they do it all, apart from a coherent um, understanding of the Bible, they, they simply spout off their humanistic opinions, hoping someone will agree with their subjectivity. Fox News is not exempt, by the way. The point is, we can't fix anything if we don't have the proper biblical tools. Now, I say all of this at the beginning to sort of set the stage for the text before us tonight. Chapter 7 of Hebrews gave us the argument for Christ being the final high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 8 gave us the biblical theological argument for properly understanding the new covenant that accompanied this Melchizedekian priest. 
And now we come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 will give us a correct understanding of the atonement in Christ's blood and its function for the people of God in history. Now, I emphasize the connection between atonement and history because for the average Christian, when he or she says things like, together for the gospel, what T4G ought to say is T4G, together for going, as in going to heaven when we die. Now, I could see how one might read a passage like this, like what we have here in Hebrews 9, and conclude something like this. Well, great. Jesus came to die. He's going to come back someday. This is, this is fantastic. This is, well, this is awesome. This is now my hope. But this sort of erroneous thinking not only leaves us in, in a state of irrelevancy in the culture around us, it isn't even biblical. It's not even Christian. Keep in mind the context. The writer, presumably Paul and his team, writes this letter to Jewish Christians, and it would have been circulated all over the place, of course, and in no place whatsoever do they say things like this. Relax. I know things are bad, but Jesus is coming back to wrap up history, so don't fret. This is nowhere in the text of Hebrews or the New Testament for that matter. What Hebrews intends to do is provide a covenantal understanding for what God is doing, all the while giving them the theological foundation for how to actually live for God. So the Bible is not a manual for how to behave while you're in heaven. That's not what it is. The Bible, and again, to point out the obvious, the book of Hebrews as well, gives people the proper ethical judicial grid for interpreting the world and engaging the world. And chapter 9 is no different. So let's, let's walk through it very, very quickly. We see in verse 1 that the writer reminds us that the first covenant, the Old Testament as we know it, had regulations of divine worship, and this was focused on the earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle and temple was the center of this worship. In verses 2 through 5, we are told that in the tabernacle, there were two main sections. You had the outer section and the inner section. The outer section of the tent included all sorts of paraphernalia, the lampstand, the table, the showbread. This was the holy place, verse 2. Inside the holy place was an even holier place, the holy of holies, the place behind the veil, verse 3. Inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained three things, right? The golden jar holding manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And on top of the golden Ark of the Covenant was the cherubim and the mercy seat. This seat is where God took up residence with his people. Now, the writer isn't downplaying these things. He, he's simply showing in detail how they served as a copy of the heavenly things. In verse 6, we read that the priests served regularly in the outer portion, the holy place. But once a year, we read in verse 7, the high priest would enter the holy of holies, but he did it taking blood with him, offering this blood for himself and the sins of the people. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. Let's go ahead and look at verse, um, verse 8. 
The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Let's examine that closer. In verse 8, we are told that the Holy Spirit is signifying something here. The way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer um, tabernacle is still standing, which he says is a symbol for the present time. Now, that's a unique thing to say. Um, while digging through a few commentaries, mostly because I was just curious how some other people would handle this, I was actually semi-disappointed with what I found. Very few even remotely addressed this. Calvin, um, John Calvin sort of skirted around it. He made a couple really good points, but, but here's what I think the writer's getting at. The way into the holy place, and I take that to mean heaven, has not yet been disclosed, or said another way, has not yet been opened. When? During the present age, the time when the tabernacle is still standing. And so, verse 9 says, you know, gifts and sacrifices under the Old Covenant administration are they're offered, but they can't make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And the reason is because, verse 10, they are focused on outward things, food, drink, washings, ceremonies, and so on. The point is, the tabernacle slash temple sanctuary is a representation of heaven, but it, actually, it doesn't actually get one to heaven. In other words, the present age, the age of the old covenant that ended in AD 70, that age is defined by earthly sacrifices offered by earthly men. And all of this was done, we are told, until a time of, quote, reformation. When was this time of reformation? Well, it wasn't uh, uh, 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door. We have to keep reading. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is the time of reformation? The time of reformation was the coming of Christ, quote, in these last days. You remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2? In these last days, right, Christ appeared. First Peter um, chapter 1, verse 20 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The end of the old covenant age was final, was wrapped up, was brought to an end in A.D. 70, only a few years after the writing of this letter. This is why Hebrews goes through such great pains to criticize the then-still-standing temple and system, all the while holding up Christ as priest and king. They needed their theology to be corrected and protected. 
there was a, a temptation for many of the Jewish Christians to fall back on Judaism, to fall back on the temple, to fall back on the ceremonies, to, to, to leave Jesus and, and sort of just go back to what was familiar, go back to what, what they knew. So Christ appeared as a high priest. He entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, one not of this creation, and one that was, wasn't built by men, verse 11. He did this, entering without the blood of goats and calves, but used his own perfect blood. In doing so, he entered once and only once, and remained there, having obtained eternal redemption, verse 12. Now we have another theological to issue to deal with. Blood and covenant. Verse 13 teaches us that if the blood of these animals sprinkled on the defiled did in fact sanctify, did set them apart for cleansing, how much more, verse 14, will Christ's blood, the blood of a perfect man, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We'll come back to this at the very end. Because of all this, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. His death took place in such a way that those under the old covenant could be forgiven and receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 15. But how is that so? Well, we're told, when there is a covenant or a testament, that there must be the death of the one who made it. Verse 16. Right, The last will and testament of a person is not in force while the person who made it is still alive. A testament, verse 17, is only valid when men are dead. Even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, verse 18. The new covenant, like the old, had to have blood. And there's a reason for that, right? Blood is symbolic of life. And when the blood is poured out, testaments are enacted. There's an issue of life and death. We'll come back to that in a second. The new covenant's testator, Jesus Christ, he has retroactive blood atonement, right? That, and people kind of get this confused. Well, how did David and how did the Old Testament saints become Christians? How are they saved? Well, they're saved the same way we are, by faith in Christ and his, his atonement, that's how they're saved the same way. That's how they're saved. Christ's atonement transcends time. That's why in the book of Revelation, you can read a verse that says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. Um, Christ's blood atonement is a retroactive payment. Now, moving on. In verse 19, we have the example of Moses. In accordance to the law, Moses took the blood of the substitutionary animals and he sprinkled both the book of the covenant and, notice in Exodus 24, all the people. He sprinkled the book of the covenant and the people. Now the writer quotes Exodus 24, 8 here in verse 20 to prove his point. Moses sprinkled the tabernacle and all the things in the tabernacle with blood, verse 21, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And this is true in all covenants, verse 22. Because of all this, verse 23, it was necessary for the earthly copies of the heavenly realities be sprinkled for cleansing. But the heavenly tabernacle needed a better sacrifice. Enter Jesus. Now, as a quick side note, the heavenly places needed purification, 
Why would Jesus need to take his blood and sprinkle it in the sanctuary of heaven, right? Was was there a problem there? Well, no. It needed purification, not because God is sinful and because somehow the, you know, the place was uh, the place was left unkept. It needed to be a place where sinners who experience Christ's blood outside the heavenly tabernacle like on earth could still enter the heavenly tabernacle without penalty. Now, Christ didn't enter the earthly tabernacle, the copy, but he entered the heavenly reality to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 24. He doesn't have to repeat the sacrifice year by year because his perfect blood is sufficient for the terms and conditions of the covenant. Verse 25. If Jesus needed to offer himself again and again, it would be needless to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Verse 26. Instead, he came to put sin away by his own single sacrifice. Now let's look at verse 27 here and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What is he getting at? Just as men die once and then face judgment, right? Every man, everyone, 10 out of 10 people die annually. Everyone dies, right? That's the wages of sin. It's death. Just as men die once, you die one time, and then you face judgment. Notice the connection here between these verses. So Christ the King dies once and then brings judgment, right? Now, his his appearing a second time here in this text He's not talking about a future second coming. He's talking about when he came to destroy the temple in Jerusalem to bring salvation and deliverance for, for Christians like the Hebrews here. So it's not a second coming passage. Clearly, the writer makes the connection in these two verses. Men die and they're judged. Jesus died. And what, what happened? He was raised. He ascended to the throne. And he is the judge. And he brings his judgment, his covenantal sanctions in history. So the entire context of the book of Hebrews is centered on the end of the old age, right? That's AD 70, and the inauguration of the new age when Christ was raised. So this overlap of the ages from AD 30 to AD 70, that's that generation, that's the key to understanding the book. It's the key to understanding the Olivet Discourse and much of what the New Testament says uh, about Satan being crushed and so on and so forth. So, We don't have time to get into too far of that, but just pay attention to how the writer takes verse 27 and applies it. So that's the summary of our text. Let's dig into it some more. I said at the outset of the message that God intends to put the world to rights. God intends for his kingdom to disturb all other humanist kingdoms. The kingdom of God is not talk but power. It's, it's not an idea, but a reality. It's, and many Christians treat it like that, right? Well, the kingdom of God is just sort of this theoretical idea that the church is connected to, but, but that's about it. No, it is a reality. Christ's covenant kingdom, sealed by his blood, intends to be something that God puts into places in all crevices in all of the universe. Christ's covenant kingdom, sealed by his blood, intends to be something that God puts into place in all crevices of the universe. I have said this a hundred times, but it must be understood. Remember the audience of the letter. 
They lived in the wilderness, like Israel, the 40 years between Christ's death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They were on the cusp of taking the land, taking the entire world, just like Joshua when he led the Israelites into Canaan. Like us, the early church was tasked with the responsibility to take the King Jesus gospel message and press it into everything, including Caesar's household. That was their task, and that is our task. They were called to take the land. We are called to take the land. But how in the world could they do such a thing? How could they even manage to do that? What means might they deploy in order to do this? Here's the thing. The bell that Hebrews intends to ring over and over again is the finality of Christ's atonement. We'll talk more about that next week as well. The bell that Hebrews intends to ring over and over again is the finality of Christ's atonement. All of human history, all of philosophy, science, theology, economics, jurisprudence, all of it centers on Christ's atonement. The center of history teeters on the fulcrum of the cross of Christ. The center of history in everything that man does in history teeters on the fulcrum of the cross of Christ. We as Christians hold the cross of Jesus in high regard. We have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We love the atonement. But, as we've touched on before in this series, we must not reduce the atonement to selfish sentimentality. We must not reduce the atonement to selfish sentimentality. The blood of Christ doesn't just give us forgiveness of sin, and that is amazing as that is, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us so that we might become a living, consecrated sacrifice. I'll say that again. The blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ, doesn't just give us forgiveness of sin. It is sprinkled on us so that we might become a living, consecrated sacrifice. We have nothing. When we come to Christ, the only thing we bring is our sin, right? We have nothing to offer Christ. And so we give back to God that which he has given us, namely Christ himself and our obedience. Here's the thing. Many, many Christians misunderstand the whole blood sacrifice thing. You know, many, many liberal theologians see the blood thing as, you know, being merely a symbol of love. Jesus died to show us how much he loved us. Okay, well, that's, that's a fraction of it, but certainly, you know, they, they sort of Valentine's Day the atonement, right? Ushi-gushi, God loves you and has a great plan for your life. But without the background of the Old Testament sacrificial system... We won't understand Christ's atonement, at least not in the larger sense, the sort of larger sense that deals with history in a covenantal fashion. Animal sacrifices, this is important to to note here, animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant economy served three main purposes. They served three main purposes. First, The sacrificial system served as an offering of something to God in reverence of him, right? So the gift, as always, as any gift is, is is an extension of the giver. The, The whole system, when you brought a bull or a calf 
you know, their provisions for the poor people to bring a, a, um, a bird, pigeon, you, you know, you, uh, you are bringing yourself to that, right? You are in reverence towards God. You are giving an offering to him. That's one aspect. Second, the sacrifice of the animal showed that sin is a serious deal, that we need forgiveness for our sins, and God's going to have to provide the forgiveness. God's just going to, like Abraham and Isaac, right? Isaac deserved to be on that altar. But, and Abraham said over and over, the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice. He kept saying that to Isaac on the way up the mountain. And lo and behold, God did. He provided a ram in the thicket. Um, but but the sacrifice of an animal, it it when you brought that to God, yeah, it was an offering. That's the first part, right? But second, it showed that sin is a very serious deal, that we need forgiveness of sins, and God's going to have to figure that out. He's going to have to do it. Any Old Testament saint who would have brought a sacrifice, the one who who did it the right way was the one who said, this should be me. This sacrifice, I should be on that altar. That should be my blood. Now, animal sacrifice wasn't put in place by a capricious God. It was a temporary means of providing covering for the sinner. That animal died in its on in in the sinner's place, substitution, right? Same thing with, with Adam and Eve. Um, God provided atonement for them. Now, third, the sacrificial system demonstrated our need for cleansing and purification in order to properly obey God. Yes, it was a gift. Yes, it was a gift that showed how serious sin is and how bad we need forgiveness, but it also didn't just help provide some semblance of justification or a covering, as we might say. This system demonstrated our needs for cleansing inside, for purification of our conscience, in order to properly then leave that sacrifice and go obey God. Now, many people, they they balk at this idea, charging God with fickle you know, barbarism, right? He's just a barbarian. Animal blood? Come on, animal blood. Christ's blood? What's all with what is with the blood stuff? That's barbaric. And and we would reply, okay, Planned Parenthood. <laughs> blood and covenant go together because the issue for man is always covenantal. It's ethical and judicial. It's about righteousness and justice. Adam sinned, God promised death. Man dies because of his sin. In order for this ethical chasm to be bridged, blood must be spilt. That's why the first atonement was the animals that God killed in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Once we understand the covenantal nature of sin against God, we can then understand the relationship between blood and covenant. One of the things we need to be reminded of is this. There is nothing tentative about Christ's work. There is nothing tentative about Christ's work. There is nothing provisional or iffy. Christ's covenant is fully and completely and eternally efficacious. That's the resounding message of Hebrews. Christ's work, Christ's atonement, actually does restore sinners to relationship with God. It really does do this. It really does serve as the foundation for a man's justification, his legal standing before God. But that's not all it does. That's where we, even us reform people, we tend to stop there. 
When Christ was crucified, he was establishing his testament. When he was crucified, he was establishing his testament, his covenant. When he was buried, his testament then was planted, right? Planted in the ground like a seed. When he was raised as the triumphant king, his testament began to be enforced. And you should know something about the times we live in. This Here's the time we live in. Are you ready? We live in a time of the enforcement of the testament. That's the time we live in. We live in a time, in the time of the enforcement, and I choose that word purposefully, the enforcement of the testament, of the covenant. Our testator, yes, he died, but he was raised. He is alive and well, and his inheritance project for the nations has now begun. Jesus died, his covenant was enforced, part of the inheritance of that was the nations, and now that's our task. Because of the gospel of the kingdom, we need to know that last part. Just as Hebrews, they were commanded to take the land, we are called to the same thing. Our older brother Jesus died, he was raised, which means that his covenant testament is now in play. You see, the goal of Christ's work is not to create a new monasticism. The goal of Christ's work is not to create a new monasticism. One where the church hunkers down, bathes itself in pietism and gooey stuff, right? And retreats from the world. His work in the church happens the way it does for the sake of the world. You are saved not to retreat, but to go forth. We, the church, we are a means. We are not the goal. We are a means. The individualized only gospel removes the central component for why Christ came to die. He came to die so that the church could die, and, and, he, and he was raised so that the church could be raised, sit in the heavenly places with Christ, and then enforce the terms of the will and testament. Now, I bet you've never heard a Good Friday sermon on this. The atonement of Christ ought to lead us towards action, not retreat. It ought to lead us towards action, not retreat. His life-giving, sin-crushing substitution is meant to drive us toward godly activity and dominion. I'll say that again. His life-giving, sin-crushing substitution is meant to drive us towards godly activity and dominion. Anything less than this is simply disobedience. Now, I want you to see one particular verse here, and then I'm going to kind of end end with this. Look at verse 13 again. I want to show you kind of what I think the writer is emphasizing and and how we apply that. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, right, he was sinless, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When you came to Christ because the Spirit beckoned you to come, one of the things Christ did was sprinkle his blood on you. When you came to Christ, he sprinkled his blood on you. The atonement of Jesus Christ gives you consecration. You're set apart. You are holy. You have been consecrated. 
like all the items in the tabernacle that were sprinkled with blood, you too, Christian, were sprinkled with Christ's perfect blood. The aim of the sprinkling was consecration, and the aim of being consecrated, being set apart, is cleansing. But the cleansing isn't where it ends. That's normally where we stop. The cleansing is where it starts. The text says that you were cleansed in your conscience, quote, from dead works to serve the living God, end quote. Notice the connection. Sprinkled blood leads to a cleansing of dead works, right? Works done while you were dead in your sins, so that you can serve the living God. Part of the sacrificial system was the fact that putting an animal on the altar was done by a person who knew that he should have been on the altar himself. He is the one whose blood should be spilled. It's only by God's grace that it was the animal and not him. The same goes for the Christian. Except for the Christian, though, he really does die with Christ. Christ's death is your covenantal death. He died so that you could die as well. And when we are tied together with him... His blood is what removes our sins so that we can serve the living God. Christ brings us together. We are covenantally dead with him. We were buried with him and we were raised with him. And all of that's done so that we could serve him. He has made us priests and kings. He has restored us to our position as priests and kings. God gives us clean consciences because we are called to guard the garden world. That's what we're called to do. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do. That's what we are called to do. He gives us clean consciences so that because we are called to guard the garden world. Since we are priests, we are called to the task of interposition. The clean conscience that you get by Christ's sprinkled blood is a means to godly activity in the world. Listen, atonement, that's that's the point of this passage. Atonement is tied to dominion. But we have a problem in today's evangelical world, don't we? Instead of equipping the church to build and guard, to work and keep, we lay on their renewed consciences, right? We lay on their sprinkled clean consciences loads and loads of institutional church guilt. And then we wonder why we haven't advanced yet. As I said last week, the great heresy of Judaism was a belittling of God, relegating him to man-made buildings made by men. But we cannot and we must not limit God. When the institutional church creates a monopoly on people's time, endless programs after endless programs, VBS after VBS, once... When, when that happens, when that monopoly happens, we begin to see our impotence unravel. We have church building after church building here, right down Lee Highway, and each of them are vying for your attendance, right? Easter, Easter promo after Easter promo. I saw on Lee Highway two churches advertising their Easter weekend stuff right in front of another church, right in the median of the highway. You know, once you're in the door then, your conscience is then guilt-laden by more and more programs, more and more small groups that uh, serve no purpose, which, you know, all of that offers you nothing except for irrelevancy in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. We have a major problem. 
the atonement is relegated to a dualistic purpose solely for individuals to go to heaven instead of a means for God to put the world to rights. The atonement is relegated to a dualistic purpose solely for individuals to go to heaven instead of a means for God to put the world to rights. You were cleaned up, sprinkled with Christ's blood. Your clean conscience is meant to put you to work for God in all areas of life. And if we will not treat it as such, if we will not honor the blood in the covenant, then God will remove us from history and raise up someone else who will take it seriously. And I thank God for our young church plant. We've been here six months, and we've been we have been all over the place. We have been to Planned Parenthood. We've been agitating at a high school, at a colleges. Um, we have been involved in local homeschool work. We're building businesses. We're six months in, and I feel like we've already done so much. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. But make sure that we are honoring the blood in the covenant. Otherwise, we will be removed, and we will be irrelevant, and God will raise somebody else up. And so I pray that we're the ones that God has raised up to do this great work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your blood and covenant is currently being maligned, and we are disheartened by it. We anticipate, we anticipate your blood and covenant to be maligned by those who are your enemies, who hate you, who spit upon you. But the thing that grieves us the most, it causes us to most concern, is the fact that, that, that your blood and your covenant are being maligned by your bride, your church. We have reduced your atonement, Jesus, to nothing more than a selfish means for eternal bliss. So we do desire eternal rest in your presence, no doubt, but we desire to see your blood and covenant acknowledged here in this place first. So help us, Lord, to be faithful to your covenant, to be faithful witnesses to the testator. And we ask this in Christ's name, our priest king. Amen.